Well, the subject I was given uh, had the simple four-word uh, title, The Father of Puritanism. And you may smile a little when I tell you I did write to uh, a long-time friend, Joel Beakey, to say to him, because I think actually, however many years ago this conference was organized, I was given a different subject for the breakout session. I said, well, who is the father of Puritanism? (laughs) Because I somewhat share the conviction that Steve Lawson mentioned earlier on today, that the father of Puritanism was really John Knox, who, as you heard, ministered in England, became a royal chaplain, was actually offered a bishopric, which wisely he declined, but was the individual in many ways responsible for what we often think of as one of the driving principles of English Puritanism. But I always knew what the answer was. He very patiently explained to me, most people think it was William Perkins. So, Uh, I want to think with you uh, about William Perkins, Um, whether you have the new 10-volume set or not, or are excited about the fact that there are these transcriptions of um, Perkins' sermons that uh, have been marvelously discovered, and there will be 11 volumes, or whether you have, uh, as I have, the old three-folio volume set, Um, or whether you've never heard anything about William Perkins, I think there are some important lessons to learn from him. So I want to try and cover three areas. First of all, to talk a little about his life, uh, his ministry in the University City of Cambridge, and uh, a little about his immediate impact. Then to reflect on the range of his ministry as far as we have access to it, in the written legacy that he left behind. And then, if we've time, I want to focus on one or two areas that are, I think, of special interest. So, first of all, William Perkins himself. He was born uh, in 1558. His parents, Thomas and Anna Perkins, and uh, he was brought up in the small village of Marston Jabbot, in Warwickshire, uh, a few miles north of Coventry, if you are familiar with English geography, or if you're less familiar, um, as I am, I think about 100 miles or so north and west of the city of London. And we know relatively little about William Perkins' upbringing. Um, It looks likely that at some stage in his early years, he suffered from some kind of accident that caused a degree of incapacity in uh, his right side or even in his right hand. And so it seems that he wrote everything he wrote with his left hand, which would be very impressive, especially if he was naturally right-handed. He came up to Christ's College in Cambridge in 1577. And that's significant because Christ College uh, was one of those colleges that had become increasingly a center of reforming influence, of Puritan influence. In those days, um, 
students were ranked by and large originally according to financial ability into several different strands. They might later be ranked in terms of academic ability. But Perkins came as what was called a pensioner, um, not somebody who was drawing his social security, but someone whose parents were able, in some measure, to pay for his tuition and for his upkeep. And so he seems to have belonged to what the scholars often refer to as the rising middling sort. Um, And this is one of the characteristics of the entire Puritan period, the increase in education, uh, the increase in ability to employ that education in a social or industrial context that meant that people from relatively minor backgrounds were, in a sense, rising to positions and sometimes to financial stability that matched their actual ability. And this seems to have been true of Perkins' parents. So he goes to Cambridge 1577, Uh, which by my reckoning makes him 19, um, which may have been slightly above average age, and he graduated with a bachelor's degree in 1581. Perhaps the most significant element in his life at this point was the man who was his college tutor, a man by the name of Lawrence Chatterton. Chatterton was remarkable in many ways. One of them was that uh, born in 1536, he died in 1640. So if you think of what Steve Lawson was speaking about this morning, this is a man who spans the entire period from the, the Tudors right through the crisis of the various um, Tudor reigns through uh, James VI and I, Uh, right through to this amazing period on the cusp of the civil wars and the uh, gathering of the Westminster Assembly. So in many ways, uh, Lawrence Chatterton was the Puritan of Puritans. Um, And in actual fact, sometimes he was referred to as the Pope of Cambridge. And he was a deeply committed, reformed and reforming Christian. And for whatever reason, either by recommendation or by divine happenstance, um, William Perkins had Lawrence Chatterton as his tutor. Um, Tutor in in classical education, right through to the days of, of people like Jonathan Edwards, the tutor was the individual who guided you through your entire academic program. Lectures were ancillary in those days. Actually, lectures were not introduced into American education until John Witherspoon came from Scotland to be president at Princeton and brought in this crazy idea that you need to go to lectures if you're a student. (laughs) So this was a guided reading program um, by somebody who was himself a scholar, which is why if you meet some people from England and you ask what they are studying, they will not answer by telling you what they are studying. They'll answer by telling you what they are reading. So this was very much a reading-centered education. 
But the tutor was not only responsible for your academic advancement, he was responsible for you. So much so that some tutors took such an interest in their students that their students would sleep at the foot of their beds. Um, and these are days before people are showering every day of the week. Um, and I'm not recommending this as a necessary pattern, but it tells you that these younger men were near enough these older men, literally, as well as metaphorically, to smell their breath. And so um, Lawrence Chatterton, a leading Puritan, is clearly a significant influence on the life of this young man, William Perkins. But he didn't come up to Cambridge as a Puritan. And probably the best-known story about him that has come down through the years is the incident that seemed to prompt in him a sense of the need for moral and spiritual renewal. Um, he was given to drinking more alcohol than he should have done, and uh, he overheard a woman uh, who was trying to deal with a recalcitrant child in the Cambridge streets, um, warning her child that if the child did not behave, she would hand him over to drunken Perkins yonder. And whether that story is apocryphal or not, I rather suspect that it is some indication to us that um, William Perkins' personal lifestyle was far from being a Christian one. But he was brought to faith in Christ. He remained in Cambridge, and God filled him with a tremendous evangelistic zeal. So he began to preach. He especially went to the jail in Cambridge to preach to the prisoners. He was known to accompany prisoners to the gallows and seek to point them to Jesus Christ, a tradition, incidentally, that continued, at least in Scotland, right through to the 19th century. And those of you who know something about the great worthies of the middle part of the 19th century may have read of their experiences in accompanying people to the gallows. He then graduated with his master's degree in 1584. And the key thing about that uh, was that it was the master's degree, which traditionally would go back right to the Middle Ages, that qualified an individual to begin himself to be an instructor of others. And he was given a fellowship at Christ College here in Cambridge. He remained a fellow for the next 10, 11 years till 1595 when he married a woman by the name, interestingly, of Timothy Craddock uh, with an E at the end of Timothy and an E at the end of uh, Craddock. And the university regulations in those days were a bit draconian to those who wanted to be married. Um, as I remember as a child, they were sometimes, for example, in the British Civil Service or even in teaching, you marry, you no teach. Um, and so he had to resign his fellowship, believing that Timothy Craddock was worth a college fellowship. They had seven children, and you'll not be surprised to learn if you know anything about that period and the lives of 
many Puritans. They lost three of these children in childhood. All the while, however, something more significant than his fellowship had been granted to him, and that was a lectureship. Now, to most of us, a lectureship is actually, in the American academic situation, it's like the lowliest of the lowly in the faculty. So you kind of start from lecture and you kind of work your way up and you hope that uh, eventually you'll make it to the top. But that's not what being a lecturer meant in mid-16th and early 17th century England. A lectureship was a novel idea invented by largely Puritans in order to do two things. One was to be able to call ministers to uh, villages and towns, usually rural places, where there was insufficient finance to be able to finance a minister and give him any standard of living whatsoever. And so people would club together, or a rich man might dig into his pocket and say, let's establish in connection with the ministry in the church, in the Church of England, let's establish a lectureship in which the lecturer's responsibility is to expound the scriptures outside of the stated times of worship. And so this rather genius idea, actually, meant that it was possible to place the growing number of evangelical young clergymen in places they could never have afforded to go and the people could never have afforded to pay them, but they could get the ministry of the Word of God. But in addition to that, sometimes these lectureships were appointed quite separate from the local ministry. And as you go through the Puritan period from the Elizabethan age right through into the 17th century, this notion burgeons so that all over England, no matter what the local ministry may be like, it's possible in this kind of semi-para-church way to establish the preaching of the gospel, the exposition of the scriptures. And this was a a wonderful benediction, and it was when um, William Perkins was still uh, a tutor and a fellow in the college that he was appointed to this lectureship in Great St. Andrew's Church in uh, 1584, just when he had graduated with his master's degree. All of this had actually begun back in the times of the Reformation, this notion that we have to establish the systematic exposition of the doctrines of the gospel and the pages of Scripture. And uh, those of you who know the story of the Reformation may be uh, able to remember that when Zwingli went to Zurich, he absolutely flabbergasted people by saying he was going to preach through the Bible. And uh, he began at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and he intended to keep going on. So in Perkins' day, middle of the 16th century, not so long after the death of Martin Luther, this is a revolutionary idea in which he is participating. It was so influential that in 1577, 
uh, Elizabeth I um, ordered her archbishop, uh, William Grindle, who was very sympathetic to the Puritans, to ban these lectureships. Uh, Grindle uh, tried to explain to her the importance and value of them, and although he had been appointed Archbishop of Canterbury a very short time, and although he was never dismissed, uh, he never functioned thereafter. He raised her ire and displeasure in that way. And it was in this ministry um, that William Perkins began to expound the Scriptures publicly in Cambridge, and his ministry had a stunning effect, not only on the student body, on the academic body, but also on the town itself, and also, and perhaps most significantly, on the future. And in many ways, when you review the stories of the, like the big-name Puritans many of us are familiar with, if you ask questions about who's your father spiritually, then you've got to trace this back to William Perkins. William Perkins was the man who was influential spiritually on his successor, Paul Baines. Paul Baines was the man who was influential in the life of Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs was the means of the conversion of John Cotton. John Cotton, um, I'm embarrassed to say, was the man who turned John Owen from being a Presbyterian in his own eyes to being a Congregationalist. So what you have got here is a, is a family tree and a brotherhood of men who are conscious that God has brought them together. And I think that's a very important principle when we think about the Puritan movement, actually of any great movement in the history of the church. It's very rarely that an individual is an isolated individual. I said to Dr. Beakey after his message this morning, um, how wonderful to think of how much is the answer to his mum and dad's prayer for him. Now, I've known him coming up for 40 years. I'd never heard some of that. And this was true of these men too. Most of us know the name William Perkins. Not so many know the name Lawrence Chatterton. Most of us know the name Richard Sibbs, but not so many will know the name here uh, of Paul Baines. This connectedness that produces this brotherhood. So central to Perkins' ministry was this ongoing ministry of the exposition of Scripture, expounding the text of Scripture. And as people said, the great thing about that ministry was that his life expounded the text of Scripture that he was expounding in the pulpit. However, Rather like Martin Luther and uh, very much like John Calvin, uh, Perkins realized that there was, a, there was a, a phenomenon relatively recently introduced into European life that he could seize for the extension of the gospel. And that new phenomenon was the printing press. Uh, invented, of course, by Gutenberg about a hundred years before. 
So that just as Martin Luther turned himself into Martin Luther Incorporated in the way in which he kept publishers in business by spreading the gospel through the printed word and the way in which the providential invention of the printing press meant that books could be turned out in their thousands and hundreds of thousands uh, exponentially more rapidly than had been in the past. And Perkins obviously had something of the same vision and something of the same burden to see that if the printing press can uh, increase production a hundredfold, then using it can increase the spread of biblical teaching a hundredfold. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, if you had uh, asked people, what books should I read in the middle of the 17th century? In most book lists, the books that William Perkins had written would be near the top of the tree. And so he ministered in these different ways, um, was faithful. It's amazing to me to think um, that so much of those three folio volumes or the ten uh, volume edition that's been recently produced were written by a man with a damaged right hand writing with his left hand and presumably with some kind of pretty primitive writing instrument in a day when paper was expensive and not nearly the quality that it is today. I mean, the man's work ethic must have been absolutely amazing. And there he stands, doesn't he, in a great tradition in the Christian church. So Perkins continued this ministry right through to his death. So his life spans, as we heard this morning, spans basically the entire period of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. A reign that had sought to produce a kind of via media in religion, uh, to calm things down after the conflicts of the past, that meant if you were going to rule the country, the first people you needed to rule were the archbishops and the bishops. And if you could rule them, you could literally rule everybody. So episcopacy was the key to stable government. Loss of episcopacy, something as radical as Presbyterianism or independency, as far as the monarchy was concerned, was not simply a threat to the unity of the church. It was a threat to the sovereignty of the monarch's reign. And that's an interesting part in the background of William Perkins. Certainly, he exhibits for us a model of the apostolic ministry in the dress of the late 16th and very early 17th century. So if that's, in brief, Perkins' life, what's his significance? Well, one obvious element in his significance is his written work. Um, it was said in, the, in a later day, uh, during the reign of Charles I, when William Laud was archbishop, that in many parishes in England, it was easier to find a copy of a book by William Perkins than it was to find a copy of the prayer book. Well, everybody was supposed to be using the prayer book. 
So that tells you something about this infiltration of his amazing influence. But I want to draw attention to uh, one or two particular features of Perkins' ministry that I think may be instructive to us. If you, um, I'm, Joel has not told me to say this, but if you were to publish the 10-volume edition or already have it, you'll notice that uh, his works have been rearranged by the modern editors into three divisions, four volumes of exegetical works, straightforward exposition of various passages of Scripture, um, three volumes of doctrinal and polemical works, and three volumes of practical works. Now, that's a, that's a wise and a good decision, as long as you remember that all of Perkins' exegetical works were doctrinal, that all of his doctrinal works were pastoral, that these may be three artificial divisions, but they were not really divisions in the way in which he thought about his ministry. And as you work your way through these volumes, I think you notice several things. First of all, that he sought to have a biblically grounded theology. Second, that the basic character of his ministry was expository, not in the sense that he was um, universally committed to what's usually called Lectio Continua. He wasn't necessarily preaching through books of the Bible, although clearly he did this, at least in one of the services, Uh, that he conducted during the week. But in everything, he saw his responsibility to expound the teaching of Scripture, whether that was uh, passage by passage or text by text or doctrine by doctrine, and to apply it to the hearers. And in those works, we notice something that's actually very characteristic of the Puritans, in some ways even even surprising to us moderns. And that is that the the fathers of the early period of the church, the first four or five centuries of the Christian church, appear to have had as much influence on them as the reformers. So it's a kind of startling statistic that if you... If you take almost any Puritan, he's likely to cite Augustine three or four times more frequently than he cites Calvin. And this tells us something about the way in which these Puritans thought, that while they were in this pejorative terminology, which they hated, Perkins hated being called a Puritan, they saw themselves not as extremists in the life of the church, but those who really belonged to the true continuity of the church going back to the earliest period. Interestingly, exactly the same way John Calvin did. And so you have this quite profound sense in William Perkins that he saw himself as a true Catholic theologian. Yes, there had been a Reformation, but the issue of the Reformation was that Catholicism had gone bad. And what was, in their view, happening was that Catholicism was being reformed according to the teaching of Scripture, which was better expressed often 
not perfectly, but often by the teachers and preachers of the early church. He has a work which is actually entitled Reformed Catholic. Reformed Catholic. And this is an interesting indication to us of the Catholicity of spirit that he had in looking at his ministry in connection with the whole Christian church. His critique is reserved not for Catholicism, but for what he calls forged Catholicism. Catholicism that isn't the real deal. Another, I think, interesting point to notice about his works is that he has his own burdens. I think that's a great temptation for us that we could easily fall into, actually, at a conference on the Puritans to think that every Puritan was like every other Puritan, that every Puritan crossed every other Puritan's T's and dotted every other Puritan's I's. Um, I was speaking earlier on to one of the other speakers who will remain nameless (laughs) so that at least one party in the conversation is covered um, and, and we were talking about the views of some Puritans, um, about one particular Puritan um, whose views, I think today, would be classified in terms of, like, the extremists of eschatology in the uber-dispensationalists. So if you were to read what he said, what he wrote, and you were like just your ordinary common or garden mainstream Reformed Christian who was probably sitting, I can't remember in which side of the (laughs) sanctuary today, (laughs) you might be tempted to think, this guy couldn't possibly have been a Puritan. So we've got to take account of the fact that, you know, Um, You know, we're all here because we like the Puritans, but if we step outside, you know, we've got all kinds of different views of all kinds of different things. And uh, as is often true, was true of the Puritans, they were more united when they knew what they were against (laughs) than eventually they tended to be when they had the opportunity to be for something. And then they tended to have a dissipation. Oliver Cromwell came to beat the heads of the Scots. One of the reasons he did it was because they were Presbyterians. So we've got to take account of those differences when we look back through uh, history. Among Perkins' contemporaries and those uh, who would first of all been regarded as his father's there was a tremendous passion for Presbyterianism. Of course, that's absolutely right. The New Testament (laughs) is Presbyterian. Okay, the Old Testament's Presbyterian. Heaven apparently is Presbyterian. (laughs) Right, so we get that. Um, The only problem was later on when when they began to have influence, they realized that they were actually for all different kinds of Presbyterianism. And it's interesting, as Perkins lives through the day, the, the Elizabethan period, where the reformation of the church organizationally becomes 
an existential impossibility. He realizes that the burden of ministry at such a time is not to keep banging on about Presbyterianism. That's a fight you can't win. They get a boat and sail to whatever is on the other side of the Atlantic, and maybe you might win it, but you can't win it in England in the second half of the 16th century. And so it would be foolish to exhaust your energies and labors into what Perkins regarded as a secondary matter of denominational organization and the big thing. And at the end of the day, you know, I think probably most believers would think this. The big thing is what's happening in the local congregation. However, there is connection, weak or strong, to other congregations. There's never going to be strength unless there is strength in the local congregation. And so, uh, with other like-minded people, he put his focus on the building up of the local body of Christ. And of course, he had been set down in a very strategic situation. If you'd been in the boonies, uh, your influence in doing that would be restricted basically entirely to your own congregation. If you're doing it in Cambridge, one of only two universities in England, then the range of your influence is phenomenal. And therefore, for Perkins, it's much more important to make sure that you're building up the body of Christ here and you're strengthening the testimony of individuals who will go from here, not only geographically to other places, but historically into the future. So that the battle that needs to be fought is the battle in the individual souls of those to whom you are preaching, not the external battle with church authorities. And so Perkins was no part of the kind of conviction that came to expression in Robert Brown's famous work, Reformation Without Tarrying for Any. His conviction is this, the fact that the Bible says something still leaves you trying to answer the providential question, the providential question on which he recognized different individuals would differ at what speed should this be done and by what, this, by what means should this be accomplished. And he certainly shared the conviction that was well expressed by Calvin that it's actually possible to lose the positions for which you are struggling by the way in which you struggle for them. And so in Perkins' works, Over the Peace, you find relatively little on those issues because he thought this is not the time for these battles and certainly this is not the time when they can be won and they'll not be won in the future or worth winning in the future unless in our local congregations people are built up in the gospel, in Christ-likeness. And so he chose his battles. And you see this in largely the exegetical and doctrinal and practical ways in which he exercised his 
ministry. So I think one of the great things about Perkins is the way in which he understood that the challenge of serving the Lord is always going to be a challenge of faith, and it's always going to be a challenge of wisdom and discernment to discern the times and how to relate the Word of God to the providences of God and to the church of God. And that said, I think it would be true that he lived in a time as we live in a time when uh, not everybody moves at the same speed. And it's kind of ironic, if I remember rightly, that uh, Robert Brown, who uh, wrote that famous book, Reformation Without Tarrying for Any, actually ended up back in the Church of England at the end of his day, as, as though virtually to say, I've, I've fought the wrong battle at the wrong time. So what emerges in Perkins' work is his biblical exposition. So you'll find in his writings, for example, expositions of uh, sections like Matthew 4, 1 to 11, a famous exposition of the best known and best loved and almost never understood Sermon on the Mount. Um, And um, of course, his expositions, for example, of the letter to the Hebrews. So there's undergirding biblical exposition in everything he does. He also has what we might call a catechetical focus. And here, I think, um, of course, he's writing before uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, writing before the shorter and larger catechisms, But when you explore this whole period from the Elizabethan period to the time of the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, you discover there are hundreds of catechisms being written, hundreds of them, usually ministers writing them for their own congregations, for the children in the congregation, Um, not knowing that brother so-and-so down the road has actually written a better one, but also but also giving expression to the way in which they think their own people need to learn to think. And because we're so used to catechisms, we think they're easy to write. They're anything but easy to write well. Um, But most of these Puritans had a tremendous um, conviction that they either shared with or perhaps even had derived from John Calvin. John Calvin had written... Uh, earlier in the century to uh, the Lord Protector Somerset in, uh, in England and told him the church will not survive without catechism. The church will not survive without catechism. And Perkins understood this principle that expository preaching that he was doing, biblical exposition, can very often almost sail over people's heads because they don't have the Velcro strips that will catch hold of the significance of what is being said and therefore be able to build up their understanding exponentially. Um, So this was a big thing, however it was done. And Perkins did it in various ways. Uh, He did it by taking sections of ordinary catechetical teaching like the Lord's Prayer 
and preaching it. He did it more comprehensively in an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I don't think that's usually associated with evangelicalism. But then if you think about it, the person who can stand up in church and recite the Apostles' Creed can do something many evangelical Christians can't do. He can tell you what the Christian faith is all about uh, in, in a couple of hundred words. And Perkins grasped this, um, that, we have, that we have got to put the Velcro strips into the thinking of people so that they begin to understand how the logic of the gospel actually works, not only in Scripture but also in its application. Now, I said that these Puritans didn't agree with each other about everything. Um, and I think it's probably important for us when we, those of us who love them and who esteem them, and we're at a conference that is on the, the Puritans, that we, that we don't fall into the trap of total Puritan hero worship hagiography. So, for example, I mentioned the eschatology of one esteemed Puritan writer, um, William Perkins believed in the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. Um, man I regard as a theological mentor, um, Professor John Murray, said that if Mary remained a virgin, then she was a wretch indeed. Um, well, but on several occasions, Perkins returns to this principle, and he quotes finds, or if you don't like it, he tries to find certain indications in Scripture, as, for example, the fact that our Lord Jesus hands his mother over to John and not to any brother or sister. He finds that as an indication of the likelihood that Mary had only one child. I mean, it's another stretch beyond logic to say that means that she was a perpetual virgin. All I'm saying is that was the view of the father of English Puritanism. And I'm saying it because I don't happen to agree with them. I think it was wrong. I think I share Professor Murray's view. But we need to know that not everybody we appreciate, is absolutely perfect theologically. And um, I'm prepared, maybe you're not, but I'm prepared to cut William Perkins some slack for all his imperfections. So he has tremendous theological burdens. He has one or two theological bloopers, and he's also very concerned about how do I bring this truth to bear on the life of the Christian. Um, the way I think about it is this, you know, one of the temptations, I think, of, uh, of us who are Reformed uh, is to listen to the general evangelical subculture with its absolutely neurotic fascination with the question, how is this going to work out in my life? 
And, and we, can, we can rightly be critical of that because the big question is not how is it going to work out in my life, but what is it that's got to work out in my life? And if you don't know the answer to the question what, it's almost pointless and it's going to be very anthropocentric to try and answer the question how. But when we think about that in our own culture, we've also got to remember that in someone like Perkins and in his whole tradition, the what question and the what does this mean for me question, how does this work out, belonged together. And the fascinating thing that you find in Perkins, and I think in the Puritans in general, is that they are immensely strong on the what question, the answers to the what question, and therefore they are much stronger on the answers to the how question. So their doctrine is much more rigorous and their application much more vigorous. And this is what lies behind these uh, sections in Perkins where he is dealing uh, with what came to be called questions of conscience. For him, the greatest case of conscience, title of one of his works, is the fundamental question, how do you know you really are a Christian believer? And then the question that follows, once we have received Christ, how do we walk in Christ? And it's a marvelous uh, emphasis there, for example, a big emphasis on vocation. Um, that was a huge thing at the time of the Reformation. That it's not just the priesthood that's a vocation. Um, making watches is a vocation, as lots of refugees who came to Geneva did with their little portable tools. And Maybe the forerunner of the creator of the great Patek Philippe watch that you never actually own, you just keep for future generations. You know, maybe he was a refugee in Calvin's Geneva, and that was a vocation. And it strikes me actually that it may also have disappeared in our own time. That it's not just being called to be a minister or a missionary or a church worker. We expect these people. Somebody said to me the other day, asking me how I'd been called to the ministry. Oh, he said, I'm glad to hear that you had a vocation. Um, but what Perkins is, is burdened to see, and you see the fruit of this in what happened in 17th century England, is that there is a vocation for every man, for every woman, and that one's sphere of life is not to be thought of as, I am only a. The thing that really gets me is the number of women I've known who, when somebody who's superwoman uh, in industry says, and what do you do? That the woman feels constrained to say, I'm only a housewife. No, punch you in the face. <laughs> and say, God's vocation to me is to be. Now, Perkins grasped that. And you see, one of the things that did, among all the other things he was doing to build up this, I mean, think about the sense that was conveyed to us in Joel Beakey's exposition of adoption, of the sheer dignity of the, the littlest Christian in the world. 
um, what it did was it created a real sense of dignity. That in his time, and also in our time, makes especially younger Christians perhaps able to stand up tall in this kind of world and know who they are and who they're for. And Perkins certainly grasped this in abundance, and it was a big thing in his ministry, as well as the consciousness that the life of the Christian is a battle from beginning to end. Now, we reached our cruising altitude about uh, (laughs) half an hour ago, and uh, I don't know about you, but I've been enjoying myself too much to now be able to get through all of this Material. So let me say now a couple of things about this, about specifics in Perkins' theology. One is that theologically he was indebted to the tradition that came from Geneva, but especially in the form that came from Geneva in the teaching of Calvin's successor Theodore Beza. And this is represented in uh, Perkins' work on the chain of salvation, the golden chain, as uh, it's referred to, Um, the absoluteness of the sovereignty of God. But it also appears in uh, a diagram I'm sure many of you have seen. If you haven't seen it, you can easily download it, actually. There are all kinds of versions of it, I notice, out there uh, in, in your computer's connections to the cosmos. Um, He produced something that he called an ocular catechism. Uh, Catechism, you know what that is, ocular, uh, meaning a catechism that you could see. And in that chart, it's it's like a big PowerPoint. He traces the ways in which God brings salvation and the ways in which reprobation and damnation take place. And the two things I want to say about that is, the first is that clearly his theology, for those of you who may be interested, was following Beza's supralapsarianism. So that's one thing. The second thing I want to say, because I've become so accustomed to Perkins being criticized for, for this golden chain, Um, is that if you look at his ocular catechism, you'll notice that right down the middle of the whole thing is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And I think that's really important, that Perkins grasped the fact that there is, especially in the Christian life, there is nothing in the Christian life that can be abstracted from or detached from Jesus Christ. Let me try and give you a contemporary illustration. I remember someone after a a class in seminary bouncing up to me and telling me that they had discovered adoption. It wasn't Joel Beakey. Um, (laughs) They had discovered adoption and then went on to say how when they discovered adoption, their whole life had been transformed. And, you know, that was, what do you do? But you rejoice with someone. But you notice there's a danger in putting it that way. And the danger is that what you've discovered is adoption or justification or whatever. And there's actually no mention here of the Lord Jesus. 
And there's an, I'm, I'm speaking only from my own observation, there's an enormous amount of that being characteristic of evangelicalism since the days of the Jesus people. You had this glorious experience of being born again, but if I ask you about the cross of Jesus Christ, that apparently isn't a functioning reality in your life. And while Perkins has this tremendous emphasis on our subjective appropriation of the gospel, he never releases that gospel from its center in the Lord Jesus. The second thing to uh, be said is that Perkins was a real leader uh, in the Elizabethan Puritan movement and an influencer into um, the 17th century of a preaching style. And we had a hint of this, I think, earlier on today. And he, he wrote a book, um, John Rawlinson, the general manager of the Banner of Truth Trust, <laughs> for which Joel Beakey does not work, <laughs> but which he loves, thrust this into my hand. Um, and I think this is probably on the book table. This is, this is William Perkins' book on preaching. If you've never seen it before, the thing that will strike you is its title, The Art of Prophesying. Um, you didn't know the Banner of Truth published charismatic books. Um, why do you think it's still got that title but to attract people who shouldn't be reading it? That's, you know, publishers know a thing or two. But Perkins stood in the, in the tradition of Calvin in understanding that in Scripture... The verb prophesy is not a narrowly delimited term, nor does it characteristically refer to the future. It can cover even uh, sung praises, telling forth the Word of God. And, um, for example, um, in, in the early days of the Reformation, uh, they called their gatherings for uh, preaching, their gatherings of ministers for preaching the prophesyings. Because, of course, they, they were well-schooled in what Paul says. If someone comes in and you're all speaking in tongues, you'll think you're mad. But if there is prophecy, the secrets of his heart will be exposed, and he will be on his face, at least metaphorically, saying, God is in this place. Actually, if you think about it, that's a great test of real prophesying, isn't it? Not that you're saying that guy is absolutely wonderful because he says, thus saith the Lord. But you're on your face because the exposition of God's truth has exposed the secrets of your heart. And this was Perkins' goal in preaching. And so out of his own experience, um, he penned this little book to help his students and to help others to um, understand uh, what it means to expound the Scriptures. I think it's interesting, originally it was written in Latin. It was only later translated into English. And I think, at least I like to think, I know that's not a good way of saying anything, but I like to think the reason for that was 
He didn't want members of congregations to be reading the art of prophesying and then biffing their ministers and saying, you're not preaching the Perkins way. <laughs> um, now, eventually that was able to happen because it was translated into English, but his deepest concern was for his students and for those who would learn to preach. And when you read the Westminster Directory uh, for Public Worship that Steve Lawson referred to from the 1640s, you see a very clear connection between the tradition of preaching that you find in Perkins and the tradition of preaching that the Westminster Divine said. We're not saying that everybody needs to do it this way, but we are saying this is a way we have found to be really helpful. Now, there are many things that could be said about that. Um, one of them that I think is worth noting is all preaching, because it's communication to individuals now by an individual now, all preaching to a certain extent is going to be shaped by and shaping into the context in which we live. So we'll use language that is now language rather than then language. Most ministers, I suspect, don't actually... Lots of ministers preach systematically through the Bible. They're not actually... I don't think there's any real evidence in the New Testament that the apostles preached systematically through the Old Testament. So they were preaching for their times the truth of God, and they were vehicles of that revelation in the first instance, and that puts them in a different category. Um, the question that was concerning to Ames was, how do I preach into the particular situation I'm in in the 16th century? And it's pretty clear that one of the things that he did was to take what he had learned in his education and work this out into late 16th century communication. Just as, like if you knew everything about rhetoric, here's an illustration, there is a phenomenal difference between the rhetoric of evangelical and reformed preachers in the 19th century and evangelical and reformed preachers in the 20th century who would all sign up to the same confession of faith. The rhetoric is different because the times are different. And the chief influence here on Perkins was uh, the influence of a Frenchman uh, by the name of, of Pierre de la Ramée. Um, and de la Ramée had written a, a master's dissertation and defended a particular thesis which I usually translate um, as everything Aristotle wrote was bunk. So he thought that the Aristotelian influence on communication had been harmful. And what he came up with was, I think, essentially this, and you see it actually in, in all the best preaching since the time of uh, Perkins. You've got to be absolutely clear on the, the, the big issue here and then to help people understand and apply it, you've got to systematically break it down. And for, for, for Ramus, this, this really was a kind of 
cognitive theory. This is how we understand and learn things, and actually is. So it doesn't matter what you're interested in. It might be biology. It might be um, computers. It might be baseball statistics. It's amazing the intricacies of it's this and it's not that. It's this and it's not that. And because it's this, it's this, and it's this, and it's this. And if you read a few kind of classical Puritan sermons, you'll see that influence, that influence of rhetoric in the background. Here's the doctrine. Now let's, now we understand what the doctrine of this passage is. Now we can begin to break it down. And, you know, what is embarrassing to me, I know of a vested interest in it because I preach, what's embarrassing to me, people who are neurotic about baseball statistics, people who get angry if you can't tell the difference between a fastball and a slider, get so irritated with what they call these endless Puritan divisions. They're not endless divisions. They're very careful expositions. And I think if when you're reading Perkins and other Puritans, you bear that in mind, you will come to see that what is happening is that the truth is being borne down upon you. And this is what lay behind what Steve Lawson referred to as the plain style. But the plain style did not lack eloquence. And um, one of the students who listened to Perkins preach in Cambridge um, has an absolutely amazing reminiscence about his preaching. He says he would pronounce the word damn with such an emphasis as left a doleful echo in his auditor's ears a good while afterwards. He doesn't say he shouted the word damn. He doesn't say he clenched his fist at us. It was the emotion with which he pronounced this word damn that seemed to match the weightiness and the solemnity of it. And so he says, and when a catechist of Christ's college in expounding the commandments applied them so home to us, he was able almost to make his hearers' hearts fall down, echo of what Paul says, and their hairs stand upright. And the key to this in part, and if you buy this book, which I'm sure is available at a good discount, um, you'll discover that Perkins worked with a preaching grid. So he didn't come to the pulpit thinking, this is what the text says, I don't care who's there. He asked himself the question, since this is what the text says, how does it apply to who's there? And at least in the back of his mind in his book, he's, he's a picture of at least seven different kinds of people who are likely to be listening to him. And so what drives his preaching is not only the truth of the text, but the layering of its application. So uh, that was said of his preaching um, that the meanest could benefit from it, and those who were brightest could often chew on it. And at the end of it, he says this, what lies at the heart of plain preaching? And with this I'd better close. Preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ.
And as Thomas Fuller, the Puritan age historian, says, his sermons were not so plain, but that the piously learned did admire them, nor so learned, but that the plainest could understand them. Well, thanks for flying with me. Be sure, be sure to join Ian Hamilton's flight tomorrow. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for helping us to sit at the feet of someone who taught your word, who lived the life of godliness, who encouraged your people. We pray whatever our vocation is, that we may be nurtured by your word of truth and helped to live it out for your glory. So we pray, raise up in our own times plain preachers who know how to expound and to apply the truth of God's word. And for those of us who seek to be preachers, we pray that you would grow us and help us to be more and more fruitful among the people to whom you have sent us. And this we pray for our Savior Jesus' sake. Amen.